my talk tonight uh, just is Jungar uh, spirituality and Zen Buddhism. So Kaya Wonju Wonju Wajak Nija Buddha Jungar Buddha. Young Mia caught Wurren Jurupan dinner. Nala Ulang Ninin Dong Kadich Kadidini Yunga Wurren Yunga Buja Kala Buja. I just said in my language, welcome here to Yunga Wajak Buja. And my eyes and my heart and my spirit are glad to see you all here. And uh, we're here, we gather together, sit and listen and learn about Nyunga spirituality here on Nyunga Buddha. It's our Buddha. I thought about this, and I pondered whether I should say it or not, but I will. Um, I apologise, firstly, if anything I say here tonight offends. As an Aboriginal man, a Nyungar man, who belongs to a people who have been colonised, who experienced first-hand colonisation, I speak as an Aboriginal man with that experience, but I also speak for the collective, I believe. So I would like to start with a very old story that goes back 60,000 years. 70 kilometres north of Mildura is Lake Mungo, a place of major significance, <clears throat> both for scientists and for Aboriginal people. As an Aboriginal man, I made a pilgrimage to Lake Mungo last year. Fiona and I visited Lake Mungo with others, with a local Aboriginal man who was a traditional owner for that country. His knowledge of this area is vast, not just about the Aboriginal story, but also story, the story told by the paleontologist who claim that they discovered the remains of Mungo Man and Mungo Lady. Interestingly, Aboriginal people tell a different version, for they say it was the country who decided when to reveal their secrets. It was just coincidental that the scientists were there at the same time. What is it that is significant about the Lake Mungo site? Two things. First, when Mungo Man remains were uncovered, it showed that it had been given a ritual burial. And second, the burial, it was determined by carbon dating, showed that it occurred sometime between 42,000 years and 45,000 years ago. This information both perplexed and amazed the scientists for the significance of this discovery was a first for paleontology, both in Australia and the world. The uniqueness of this discovery is unprecedented for there is no other recorded evidence of a ritual burial on the planet going back so far in time. These findings show that in Australia, 45,000 years ago, there was the presence of an intelligence evident among Aboriginal Australians. 
Lake Mungo 60,000 years ago was, a very, was very different to what it is today. Firstly, water. There was lots of water. Lake Mungo was part of the Willandra Lake system that stretched north from Broken Hill <coughs> to the south coast of Victoria. So large was this lake system, it was estimated that some of the lakes held up to five times the amount of water currently in Sydney Harbour. What are the key teachings from the Lake Mungo experience that can provide insight and ways forward for us living in the 21st century? Firstly, 45,000 years ago, Aboriginal people lived in and around these lake systems, and evidence since has shown that they lived simply, hunting and fishing closely on and with the land. Reaching back in time to 60,000 years, Aboriginal people were living and practising their culture, and there is evidence that they have they had very intricate and complex cultural practices for birth and death. Those same cultural practices are still present with us today that provides for the close and intimate relationships with kin and country. Separation both, from, both within and without is a major cause of both anxiety and distress. Separation from the natural world has become increasingly a source of distress. That is not well understood, unfortunately. Separation from within or for Aboriginal people in any event of a disconnection to their butcher country can be problematic. We are energy and a major source of our energy comes from our court, our heart butcher. In Noongar language, a pregnant woman is Bujari, which means she is carrying the country. I repeat, she is carrying the country. Both the spirit and child forming in the mother's womb are intricately connected to their country, to their Buja, and both are protected and nurtured by the Buja. Nyungar people identify with their country, with their womb, their spirit, which is located within their country. Other indigenous groups respond similarly. The Hmong, for example, who live in the mountains in Cambodia, have a ritual of burying the placenta of newborns in the ground near the place of their birth. Why? It's because they believe that when the person dies, their spirit travels back to where their placenta is buried in the earth. A reconnection to both the source, being the placenta, and the earth. Understanding intuitively the ancient ways, which applies to everyone, is the obvious way forward. For all of us are part of ancient cultures. And if we understand their teachings, we know the importance of staying with the energy of the Buddha, the country. To stray and not recognise the importance of this energy is both folly and dangerous. The Nyungar elder Noel Nanup tells of the importance of living with and understanding the importance of relationships with country. He speaks about having an intimate understanding of your totem. A totem is using an animal and they define the person's role, responsibility and their relationships both with their totem and with others. Noel says by living and breathing your totem and by knowing and integrating all aspects of your totem, so you begin to know yourself.
Australia is an ancient land and unlike other places on the planet, it has not been subject to huge geographical upheavals. So the people lived in harmony with and undisturbed for thousands of years on their traditional country. The first recorded evidence of a European land in Australia was here in Western Australia. Durkato, land on the west coast of WA in 1660, 1616, just 400 years ago. Fast forward nearly 350 years later, and still in Western Australia, somewhere east of Fitzroy Crossing in the Western Desert, desert lived Jimmy Pike, a Waldemary man who came out of the desert for the first time in 1960 as a 17-year-old. He and his family and other clan members lived a traditional lifestyle in a place seen by white people as inhospitable. But for them, as desert people, it was home. The desert was not an inhospitable place for Jim and his family, for they knew it intimately, dancing and singing the country, looking after country and living in harmony and respect. According to his partner, Pat Lowe, a non-Aboriginal woman who travelled with him on his country, he knew intimately the waterholes, where to find food and the places to avoid. They lived with the rhythm of the country, not in competition, but in harmony. Australia is a very diverse country, and before the arrival of Europeans and the impact of colonisation, there were 300 languages and over 500 dialects spoken. The diversity and sophistication of Aboriginal life is still mostly unrecognised and unacknowledged in mainstream societies. In Central Australia, the Anuru, the Pitinjara, like most other language groups, have a very complex and layered system for understanding both their environment and the means and conditions to interact with that environment. In Central Australia, the means for understanding this complex interactive dynamic is called the Trupaka, and it provides the framework for the correct cultural interpretation that allows for the ongoing harmony between people and country. <clears throat> it is often mistakenly called the dreaming by non-Aboriginal people who, because of their cultural blindness and hubris, cannot grasp that the country is a living entity and that the stories told by the Anagu are not stories from the past, but are both current and future reality. When you are ready, the country makes itself visible. A story told to me by a non-Aboriginal man who was a frequent visitor to Aboriginal people living in a remote area in Central Australia clearly illustrates this point. He told me that on one occasion, while driving with the elders between sites, he saw in his peripheral vision the landscape changing, becoming alive, rocks changing into half-human, half-animal form, just as he had heard from the stories told to him by the elders. Understandably, he was somewhat shocked. Immediately stopping the car, and with the elders in the back seat, he looked at them in the rear vision mirror and was taken aback when he saw them smiling knowingly at him. He told me that experience was transformational, his worldview changing completely. This country is alive for it breathes and moves. And if you can find that connection, it will reveal itself to you. My co-worker had this experience on Nyungabuja, who was at New Norcia, 
and we were standing on the bank of the Moor River, as you do, and as you do when we were paying respects to the river, throwing sand across the surface of the water and saying, Kaya Wago, Kobadak, Yang Jang, Nunuk. Ka Wago, we are walking around the river. At this point, myself and another colleague saw the Woggle rise up out of the water and sweep over her. She was aware of what was happening and she stood there completely at ease, welcoming the experience. This is an example of an understanding from within, knowing where you are, feeling and experiencing the Buddha, not as something inert, but something that's pulsing and alive. Understanding from within allows us to take refuge in the way the Buddha took refuge, for he touched the earth to ground himself. So when we take refuge, we should also touch the earth. We need to be grounded in the earth, in this Buddha, Yungha Buddha. It is unfortunate that less than a generation ago, Australian children were told that Aboriginal people were illiterate and uncivilised, and that the arrival of Europeans in 1788 was fortunate, for it saved us from certain extinction. Ray Norris, the chief research scientist at CSRIO, disputes this proposition, for he says that when the Europeans came here with their simplistic notions of the Aboriginal people, they were both arrogant and foolish. He recounts Bill Gamage, who writes about how Aboriginal people carefully managed the country to maximise its potential and that when Europeans arrived, their lack of understanding of how to look after country has resulted in land being destroyed by intensive agriculture. He further states that Aboriginal people had sophisticated number systems and navigated using the stars, and their wealth of oral stories included stories on how eclipses work, and they used this knowledge to travel across country for trade and in order to access seasonal foods. Norris concludes by saying that Australians must overcome the intellectual inertia that keeps us, keeps us in them in that old paradigm that Aboriginal culture is primitive, stopping us from recognising the enormous contribution that Aboriginal culture can make to our understanding of the world and to our attempts to manage it. Indigenous spirituality is critical to the survival of our species and to the planet. There is much to learn from Aboriginal culture. It can begin with greater acceptance and awareness of Aboriginal spirituality. Nyungar spirituality can deepen an understanding of our profound connection to place and that we need to treat all things, animals, plants and landforms, with deep respect. Modernity has created this split and as such people are seriously... disconnected to the natural world, wandering aimlessly, not knowing and understanding why. Christianity came with the tall ships, a, mono, a monotheistic religion based on exclusive rights over the animals and plants over the earth. As the verse Genesis 1.26 attests, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. 
with the blessing and authority of the church, these early Christians came to impose their religion and to denounce and ridicule the spirituality of Aboriginal people. Their religion, Christianity, was according to them more superior and as such could not coexist alongside Jungar spirituality. Those who have come to save souls and to convert their religion and worldview have done irreparable harm. Children have been taken away, removed from families on the basis that they did not have Christian values. Children were taken away with the intention to raise them as Christians. My friend, the Jesuit priest, told me of visiting Belgo Mission as a young novice in the 1970s and witnessing very young Aboriginal children being taken from their families and being placed in dormitories and raised by priests and nuns until they were 17 years of age. The parents lived literally just metres away from these dormitories but had no contact with their children for their entire lives. He was appalled and the practice was soon stopped after this time. Christianity is nonsense when you hear stories such as these. I personally struggle with Christianity. I struggle with any belief system that seeks to subdue either by force or coercion. My own family had strong ties to the Catholic religion and through the influences of the monks, the monks and nuns at New Norcian Mission, my mother was totally in awe of their religion, both in her life and its influence over wider society. She told us, my brothers and I, stories of Jungar people who were converts to Catholicism, who when travelling across the country and if encountering, if they encountered spirits in the land, they would respond by holding up crosses, denouncing these spirits and praying to Jesus. I've heard of other Aboriginal Christians who similarly, when they're camping on their country, encountering spirits of the land, again, praying to Jesus for their protection. Totally oblivious that perhaps the spirits of the country were not a threat, but were welcoming them back to the court, to their court, their Warren, their Buja, their heart, spirit, country. Contrary to these spirit stories was an experience I had once on a trip to a remote area in Central Australia where I'd been on a number of previous occasions. On this occasion, we had been there for a week with the local elders, travelling, visiting sites and singing and dancing the country. When we were leaving, the guide, a non-Aboriginal man, told us that the elders wanted to say a prayer for our trip. I was surprised, for this had never happened before. Whereupon the elders recited the Lord's Prayer. I was taken aback. Here we were on country, having a week of a strong connection to country through song and dance, and during that week, I'd felt a strong energy, a strong energy and connection to the land. I went away very bemused and confused. It took me ages, perhaps a year later, before I could reconcile that experience. What I realised is that this group of elders had not rejected their Aboriginal culture and spirituality, but rather had just reintegrated the Christian story into their own. The story of Jesus was now part of their desert story, their story of country, it was an epiphany. Buddhism and Jungar spirituality are, I believe, very compatible and importantly can coexist. To illustrate their compatibility, I will recount two examples. First, the story of Padma Sambhava, the lotus born, also known as Guru Rinpoche, who was an 8th century Indian, Indian, Indian city master. Padmasambhava went to Tibet at the invitation of the Tibet king, Trisan Densen, 
to help in the construction of the first Buddhist monastery, Samyu, in southern Tibet. The king had asked Padmasambhava to come to Tibet on the advice of another Indian city who was helping in the construction of the monastery, but was unable to complete the building because of the spirits in the land. He advised the king that the only person who could complete the building of the, building of the monastery was Padmasambhava. Padmasambhava came and he first engaged with the spirits and rather than through force, subdue or conquer, he acknowledged the spirits and that engaged with them in relationships. He came and in time the spirits in partnership helped, the story goes, in the construction of the monastery. I believe if Padmasambhava had come to Australia in the 8th century, he would not have tried to conquer or subdue by force the spirits of this land. He would have acknowledged and engaged with them in relationship. He would have found a way to coexist alongside the spirits of this land. The other example of how Buddhism can coexist and also heal is the work of the American Zen Buddhist Roshi Bernie Glassman, who is a co-founder of the Zen Peacemaker, Peacemaker Order. The key teachings of the Zen Peacemaker Order are three tenets for bearing witness. One, letting go of fixed ideas of ourselves and the universe. Two, of bearing witness, bearing witness and seeing what comes up. And three, loving actions or compassionate action. Because we do not come to heal, but we or to fix, we just come to bear witness. According to Bernie, when we bear witness, when we become the situation, whether it is homelessness, poverty, illness, violence, death, colonisation, the right action arises by itself. I should say decolonisation. We don't have to worry about what to do. We don't have to figure out solutions ahead of time. Peacemaking is a function of bearing witness. Once we listen with our entire body and mind, loving action arises. Loving action is right action. It's as simple as giving a hand to someone who stumbles or picking up a child who has fallen on the floor. We take such direct, natural actions every day of our lives without considering them special. And they're not special. It is simply the best possible response to that situation in that moment. I believe these two examples show that Buddhism can be a force for good if it does not emulate or replicate past practices. If those who practice Buddhism can remain non-judgmental and move gently across the landscape and focus on the similarities rather than the differences, we can live in harmony with each other. Finally, I believe Buddhism can coexist alongside Nityunga spirituality, as the story of Padmasambhava and Bernie Glassman attests. And it can heal and partner in relationships with Aboriginal people and the spirits of the land regardless. Nyungar Buddha is very old and ancient. He was here before humans arrived and it will be here after the last human has left. Lessons from the past have shown that humans are not superior. So we need to be in relationships both with the land and with the spirits of this land. 
We sit and listen with our ears and we look and see with our eyes. Debakan, Debakan, Debakan. Steady, steady, steady. Thank you.